So last week we, we looked at like the whole of the book of Job, almost. We didn't look at the end on purpose, uh, to try to get a perspective. Like, you know, here's God who's infinite, so how are we ever going to get a, a full picture of God? But we want the fullest picture that we can, and certainly the fullest picture that he presents to us in the scriptures. And, and people based upon their bent have different ways of seeing God. You know, there's, there, when we were in um, Africa, I think I mentioned this, that the young women were all the bride and, and he was the groom. And, and they, saw, they saw God through Song of Solomon, which, if, I, if I'm honest, that makes my head spin like 10 times faster than even Isaiah does. So that one is a tough one for me, but that's how they saw God. He, he was the groom and they were the bride and that's how they saw God. And then you can see from the New Testament, you can see Abba, Father, as, as a way from, from the different places in the Bible. You can see him as, as provider, as healer, deliverer. You know, and, and it's not that he's any one of those things. He's all of those things. But the one we don't talk about so much is the sovereign disposer of the universe, of everything that is, right? And um, we tend to, this happened to me as I first started to get in, in, indoctrinated into Christianity, I was indoctrinated by people who wanted me to want God. And the way that they, they tried to help me to want God was to tell me how much he loves me, that he just wants to bless me, that he wants to give me abundant life, and all these kind of things, which for somebody who's ignorant to any scripture, I'm happy to grab every bit of that. But then what am I going to do when suffering comes? What am I going to do when persecution comes? If I don't have a full picture of God, then I'm going to relate to him less than the most excellent way. So, so looking at God through this lens that we see in Job, and we see we don't just see God in one way through Job. We see we see him, you know, many of his facets through Job. But the the one that I wanted to bring out uh, last Sunday to see is he's sovereign. And and when when we say sovereignty trumps fair, you know, we we kind of put fair up on this plateau that says, well, that's not fair. You know, you didn't do that to some other righteous guy, but you did it to Job, so you shouldn't have did it to Job because it wasn't fair. Well, sovereignty trumps fair. There is no there is no fair when it comes to sovereign. God can do whatever He wants, and because He does it, it is right and it's righteous for Him to do, and we should understand that. So you go through the book of Job, and you see at the beginning that. God is having this uh, audience, the sons of God are before him. And Satan's there too. And he asks Satan, hey, so you know, what have you been up to? And he says, well, I've been roaming about the earth. And, but he's not just a guy going for a walk. He's a guy looking for someone to devour, right? So we have a sense for what he's doing because he says, I've been walking about the earth. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, it's hard to make that connection unless you understand that Job is wandering around looking for somebody that will open a door that he can go into to kill, steal, and destroy. God offers up Job. Satan says, well, you, I can't touch him because you've put such a hedge around him. You've made it impossible for me. But, but the, hedge God, the hedge that was around Job was God's blessing. There was no impenetrable wall. The problem that Satan had is that that. God blessed Job so much. Job had such a reverence for God that he wouldn't transgress God. Satan's claim to God was, you take that blessing away and he'll curse you to your face. God said, all right, you can take everything, but you can't touch Job's, you can't touch his body. So he lost his 10 children. He lost all of his livestock, his servants, everything. All of his possessions Satan took away from him. 
and yet he didn't curse God. So Satan's back. God's having another thing with the sons of God. Satan's there again. He asks him what's going on. And Satan says, well, but if you touch his body, he'll, he'll surely curse you to your face. He said, okay, you can't kill him, but his body is yours too. And Satan smotes him with these boils all over his body. And, and that's the only specific I can remember it says. But he is so messed up from what Satan did that when his pals came to see him, they didn't even recognize him. He was so disfigured. So he was seriously messed over. And then his pals, uh, I don't know their names, A, B, and C, A, B, and C show up, and you know they got all the answers. And just like the Jews in the New Testament, they, they were saying, Job, this happened to you because you're a sinner. And he said, I'm not. I haven't sinned. You had to sin or this wouldn't happen to you. So they go for chapter after chapter after chapter telling Job what a bum he is, and Job is telling him, I'm not a bum. Gets to the point in chapter 13, Teresa quoted the scripture, where Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, or I will trust him. Though God slay me. See, because Job, his perspective was, God is doing this to me, yet I'm a righteous man. Though he slay me, he's slaying me, I will trust him or hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So this is where the wheels came off for Job because he told, he, he declared that God was wrong and he was right. And when he gets his audience with God, he's going to explain to God how you did wrong because I'm a righteous guy and you treated me like an unrighteous guy. He was ignorant to what was going on. His default should have been, there's never an argument before God. God is only and always righteous. He's sovereign. But this is where Job stumbled. Now, there's a, there's a part in here where it says, in Job, where it says, you know, the thing that I feared came upon me. And, and a lot of people say that it was his touching that fear. It's okay. I got a microphone. The babies can only do what the babies can do. But I got a microphone and a volume lady back there. So you don't be concerned. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I'm certain his fear was not something that endeared him to God or helped him with God. But, but the way I see this, the big deal was that he was going to make his case why he was right and God was wrong. and None of this should have ever happened to him. And I believe that's true because we see how God responded to it, and it's that that he seems to be responding to. So all this goes on. Job makes that comment. And then all the way to the end of chap- or the beginning of chapter 38, you see, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you to instruct me. Now, again, this is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Now this goes on for chapters of God pressing into Job like this. In chapter 40, in verses 1 through 5, we see... Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder, Job would be the fault finder, contend with the Almighty. Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. So God is demonstrating the difference between himself and Job through these comments like, you know, when I laid the foundation of the earth, where were you, Job? And, and Job comes to understand that his statement was wrong. Then in chapter 42, God, now after, after Job lays his hand on his mouth, 
he gets some more from God just to make sure that they're clear, I guess. In 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job restating God's question to him in chapter 38. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, because of that, I was ignorant. I had this this understanding from the ear, but now I have a fuller understanding. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So that was the perspective that I wanted us to get last week without the end of the story. Because I wanted us to understand that God is sovereign. And most all of you know how the book of Job ends. I'm going to read it for you anyway. But most of you know how the book of Job ends. But see, if you wait to make your decision about his sovereignty after you evaluate the end of the book, then you're judging God. You're saying to yourself, listen, you know, okay, God can be sovereign because he made right what he did wrong to Job. That's not the case. God could have left Job just how he was, and he would have been absolutely right to do that for whatever his purpose was. And, and I, I think that Job was given one of the highest places of honor that I see anywhere in the scriptures. Obviously, Jesus has the highest place of honor. That's easy. But you look at your Moseses and your Elijahs and, and your Jobs and Pauls and Peters and all those guys, and, and Job was the one that God gave the honor of basically rebuking Satan. Satan said that there's not a person that loves you in a righteous way. They only love you for what you can do for them, not for who you are. And God offered him up Job on a silver platter and says, I'll show you one. And Job didn't. He, the, the, he, he questioned God, but he never in the affliction. And he thought it was coming from God, not from Satan. God just opened the door. He never once cursed God. Even his wife said, are you kidding me? Are you still honoring God? You should just curse him and die. That wasn't good advice. Okay, so, so now we get to um, chapter 42 in verse 7. And remember, Job had these three pals. Um, I'll give you their names. They might be here. Nah, I won't worry about it. You'll get them. These three pals, and, and they characterized God wrong. And, and Job, it turns out, characterized God properly even though he didn't understand what was going on. So in verse 7, this is where God is now going to deal with Job's pals. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right and my servant Job has, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the, the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. 
what I want to do now is I'm going to, I'm going to read some more from Job, but I want to start to make some, some Old Testament, New Testament connections for you because sometimes people say, well, that's Old Testament. That's under the law. We're not under the law. But there are many parallels in the New Testament that we can see that support the same conversation now as it was then. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is Peter in the New Testament. And essentially it's, it's agreeing with what God said to Job and his three pals. Job's voice I'll hear, but yours I won't. He could have told them, you guys pray to me, right? They had to make the offering, but he wasn't going to hear their prayers. Job had to pray for them. And that aligns with James chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So, God's, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here you can see he wasn't going to hear the prayers of the three guys, but he would hear, he would accept Job. And then when Job prayed for them, they got okay with God because he was a righteous man, and God would have an ear towards his prayer. And the same thing we see Peter teaching us, and we see in James saying that the, the righteous guy who offers a prayer to God can, can accomplish much. The implication would be the unrighteous person wouldn't. So if we've got important things that we need to go before God, now we are righteous in the sense that we're, we're seen in the righteousness of Jesus Christ if we're Christians, born-again people. So, so positionally, we have a righteous standing before God. But he tells us, if, we say you, if you say you have no sin, you lie and you make God a liar. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and righteous or just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So there's some issue, sowing and reaping, who knows what, there's some issue of unrighteousness. Maybe the example of our testimony is, is, is one of those. Until Teresa humbled herself, right? She said, though he slay me, I will trust him, but... And then she would state her case. Every time she was dealing with Ashley, it wasn't from God's perspective. It was from the pain perspective. And when she humbled herself, she became a righteous person. And then the grace came. I mean, you're, not that you're not righteous. You know, in many areas of life, we're very righteous. And in some areas, we, we don't act righteously. So you can't paint with a broad brush. But in that area, the deliverance didn't come until the humility came before God. The decision, the humbling of, of, of herself. Now on to Job. Job who lost his ten children. He lost all of his livestock, which was a substantial amount of livestock. He lost all of his servants, all of that stuff Satan took from him to prove to God that Job would curse God, and he didn't. So now in verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Wow, that's an interesting thing too. Job's fortunes were restored when he prayed that his friends could be forgiven for what they did. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversaries that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. 
And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first... This is interesting too. Where do you see in the ge- genealogy, the history of a, of, a, of a man's children, that they only mention the daughters, not the sons? Hmm. Um, he named the first Jemimah, the second Keziah, and the third Karen, Karen Hepak. I think those are the daughters, right? <laughs> in, all, in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. Uh, there's what sovereign brings fair. <laughs> as fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. God restored Job. He didn't restore him back to where he was, although you know, he had ten kids, seven sons, three daughters, ten kids, seven sons, three daughters. But in all of his possessions and all of that other stuff, he restored him double. Amen. Praise God. But he gets to be sovereign even if he didn't, right? Amen. Okay. Now let's look at some New Testament parallels. I'll go quick like a bunny. You see this Job thing in John chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he is Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, remember Job's three buddies? You must have committed a sin because something bad happened to you. That was the way that they thought. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so Job suffered that the glory of, or that the, the glory of God would be displayed through him. This guy was born blind so that the works of God, it wasn't fair, you know. He didn't make everybody born blind. This guy was born blind, and God's sovereign, and he chose to do it, and he did. And the guy didn't stay blind, and Job didn't stay sick, and Job didn't stay poor. But if God chose it, it's sovereign. So there's a New Testament example of somebody who has similar situation for the similar purpose as Job did in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 13 through 21. Just as it is written, this is uh, quoting the Old Testament. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And, and with God speaking, loved and hated, you've got to be a little bit careful with. It, it might be the way we should see it. It says loved and hated, so I don't argue with the words. But it might be chose and rejected. Somebody was going to be the line that Messiah would come through. It could have been Esau. It could have been Jacob. It could have been Isaac. It could have been Ishmael. But God chose Isaac because he was the son of the promise, not the son of the flesh, Ishmael. Isaac then had these two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob God chose. Esau God didn't. He loved Jacob to the place of this role. Esau, he didn't. He hated. But I don't think it means he hated him. Although Esau gets jammed up pretty good for giving away his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? Jacob, God loved. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? 
Again, it wasn't fair, right? He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. It wasn't fair. It doesn't matter. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's a statement of sovereignty. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? This is Paul stating the sovereignty of God. It's this way because he chose it to be this way. You know, what if, what if, um, what if in the body of Christ, and, 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 and he, scriptures actually address this, what if, what if your job in the body of Christ is the one who cleans the toilets? And, and, and your, your brother or sister is the one that God exalts, not exalts like they're better than, but puts them in this public place where the whole world can see them. And they get all this honor, and they get all this glory, because they happen to be the one with a microphone. And, and, but but the, teacher, the teachers, the scripture teaches us that the one with the microphone has already gotten their honor. The body is to honor the one who washes the toilets, and exalt that person, and bring them up. Because in the kingdom of heaven, what is the way to greatness? Humility, right. The one who will be the greatest among you is the one who is the slave of all. That's how we're supposed to see things. The world might see things differently, but the church should understand that in God's sovereign plan, you got your role because that's the role he chose for you. And we should rejoice and be content in whatever that is. But every person's role is necessary, and every person is gifted, and those gifts need to be exercised. Amen? Okay. Now, um, that was Paul. God. When I say, you know, if I say Paul, I mean God. If I say Peter, I mean God. Because all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's Scripture. Therefore, Paul got to write the words down, but they're God's words. Okay. So God, speaking through Peter now, in chapter 4 and verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, now, these ones you'll want to read in, in broader context, but, but they still principally mean what they say right here. So, if we should suffer according to the will of God, then that would imply that there is suffering. Actually, it's not implied, it's explicit. There will be suffering according to the will of God. But see, we're, I don't know if Job messed up in this area or not, but where we shouldn't mess up is that, that we should, when we suffer, understand that it could be according to the will of God. There's, there's many reasons the Scripture teaches why a Christian might suffer. We might suffer because the, the, our faith is being tested. We might suffer uh, according to the will of God. We might suffer because we're being chastened by the God that loves us. There's many reasons that we might suffer. But the one thing we should never do is not trust God. The work that he starts, he will finish. If suffering is in the middle, doesn't mean that God has taken his hand off you. It's more likely that you now know God's hand is on you. 
if you're suffering according to the name of God, according to his will. Again in Peter, backwards of chapter 317. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Now that's not necessarily a direct correlation. It actually is a direct correlation to Job. If God should will it so, okay, then it's sovereign. We're saying it's okay, God. If you should will it so, I'm okay with it. You know, I don't get a vote on that. Your sovereignty, I don't choose to challenge it. And that's exactly what happened to Job. He suffered for doing what was right. He was a righteous man. An unrighteous man wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been anybody that God could have used. He had to use a righteous man to show Satan what he wanted Satan to see. So right, Job got that job because of his righteousness. And then scripturally, finally, um, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul speaking, God speaking through Paul, for this reason, and, and, and this reason is, is summarized, maybe Paul's assignment serving the gospel. Because I've been assigned to serve the gospel, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That is, is that a, that, you should just read that a minute. That is a massively powerful scripture. Paul is indicating his own suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he's saying that I'm not ashamed, even though I suffer. See, if, if, if we were put in the public square in like shackles and, you know, like your head in the thing and your hands in the thing, or however Paul was humiliated, we, we might be ashamed. I don't want someone to see me like this. But he's not ashamed because he knows why he's there. He's suffering on account of his place in serving the gospel, right? But he goes on to say, for I know whom I have believed. Remember what Job said? I saw you, or I heard you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. He had a great revelation. Paul says that I, I, can, I can withstand this because I know who I serve. Well, that's the whole point of this conversation the last two Sundays, is so that we can know who we serve. Not know him from the attractive way only, but from the full way that the Scripture gives him to us. So that when these kind of things happen to us, we can stand, or you know, we're in the thing, we can raise our hands and say, praise God, right? Because we understand. And here's what else Paul knew. He is entrusted. What is it that he's entrusted to God? His whole life, right? Because see, his whole life... He gave up. He, everything that was his accomplishment, everything that he had, he said, I treat it as dung. It's nothing. It's forsaken for Jesus Christ and his gospel. But if there's nothing on the other side, right, Jesus, for the hopes up before him, he endured the cross. If there's no hopes up before him, how do you endure the cross? You, you probably don't even go to the cross. So, so Paul didn't just turn over he turned over with a hope, an understanding that what God had promised him, God was able to deliver. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced. It's in the knowing that Paul can be convinced and trust. So then I'll ask you the question that I asked you last week. How do you, how do you know God? Not, not like, how do you know him? You know him because his spirit is inside of you. You know him from experience. You know him from the truth of the word. But how do you know him? 
Are you willing to know him as the sovereign disposer of you? That he'll choose to dispose you as a tool in his hand? And it might be in glory, and it might be in suffering. It might be where five people can see you in the Middle East and some Muslim guy whacks your head off. Are you willing to know God in that manner? Because if you're not, and he does, you're going to struggle. I guess if someone's going to whack my head off, I might struggle a little anyway. But I'm not going to struggle in, the, in, in wondering who God is and wondering if when my head, before my noggin bounces off the ground, I'm going to see Jesus. And, and I won't miss my noggin one bit. That's the entrusted part. And that's the part that I want to impress upon all of us, that there's going to be things that we don't want to do that he's going to call us to do. There's going to be chastening, and there's going to be his glory to be served, and all those kind of stuff. And if we come to the place where we understand that maybe our greatest calling is to glorify God, then when we hit those times, it won't be a challenge. It'll be joy. Amen? I I just read this last thing that I have on here. Job came into that revelation. And, and that revelation was, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He had to still respond to that revelation. And he humbled himself in repentance. So if there's places in our hearts, in our lives, in our thinking, it, it happened to me, and it had been, Teresa had been bound up since she's a little girl, to some extent, in... I'm glad you're delivered. Um, in fear, in protecting herself, in guarding her heart, in, in ways that are absolutely understandable. Nobody would argue earthly wisdom that those were the right things to do, but they were totally contradictory to the heavenly wisdom that says, no, you be at peace with all people as much as depends on you. Don't return evil for evil. Even if it's just thought, thought life kind of thing, she got that revelation, but she had to do something with it. She had to humble herself and repent. And then, guess what? The living room's full of trees of life. Not the living room we live in now, but the living room where all that stuff was planted. The bad stuff got planted. The bad stuff is gone. Amen? And that's why you need to counsel yourselves. If you're having a problem with anybody, first you surrender. You go know what that word says you surrender to that thing, you look for the plank in your own eye before you start digging around for the splinter in somebody else's eye. And if you should be so fortunate that the person you're struggling with is doing the same thing, then praise God you're going to have a relationship. But if you're not, you still can stand strong because you've done what God has asked you to do and you've glorified him in your response. And, And that will be like heaping burning coals on a person's head. Not for the sake of cooking their brains, but for the sake of God using their their conscience to bring them to a place of submitting to him as well, such that they can be reconciled, you and them together, and most importantly, you and him together. Father God, thank you so much. I love your word. I mean, I am telling you, Lord, and I'm just going to prophetically say it over this whole congregation for everybody. I love your word. I love it. I know sometimes that's a fight for you to get me to actually always do it, but I'm just declaring to you that I love it. I love your counsel. It's perfect counsel. It only ever brings fruit when we surrender to your word. When we humble ourselves, we put down our flesh, we deny ourselves, and we are humble before the truth, then your grace comes, and it's so awesome.
So, Father, thank you. Thank you Then not only that, you've given us your spirit. The very spirit of God dwells inside the temple of the church, the human beings, not the meeting place, but the temple of the church, the human beings, the born-agains, such that we have the power to actually do it, the conviction to do it, the ability to recognize when we're not doing it. Thank you, Lord. You are so gracious and so kind, so patient and so loving and so right.